several years ago, John Ortberg wrote a book entitled Everybody's Normal Until You Get to Know Them. Isn't that a great title? That's so true, isn't it? They look so good from a distance when you get to know them a little bit. Ah. In his book, he he uses an illustration of the United States Life Saving Society. This is a volunteer organization that was formed late 1700s on Nantucket Island, Massachusetts. It seems that sea travel at that point in history was very treacherous, especially given the uh, rocky coastline of of Massachusetts as well as the, the storms that would come up from the Atlantic. And they would have people come all the way across the ocean just for their, their ship to get caught up in the rocks a mile away from the, the shore and have many, many perish. And the, the people on the island, the, the, the folk who lived there saw this going on and they thought, these folk are, are perishing in our neighborhood, in our backyard. We have to do something about it. And so they formed this United States life-saving society. And so what they would do, I mean, their, their motto, you love their motto, it was, you have to go out. You don't have to come back. What a motto. I would think a lot of people would be raising their hand for this one, right? But they got a lot of volunteers. Well, well what they did is they, they formed um, or they had huts built all along the, the, the coast. And these were uh, life-saving huts. So when they brought the survivors back, they would have, be able to have medical treatment right there. They'd be able to rest. They, they housed their boats and ropes and all those things. They had somebody watching the coast on a regular basis, looking the, over the horizon for any ship that's in, in danger. And when there was a problem, they would send out a team in a boat after it. Remember their, their motto. Well, what happened in time is the United States Coast Guard was, was born. And the Coast Guard initially began to work hand in hand with this volunteer organization, the United States Life Saving Society. But the Life Saving Society began to start thinking about this. They said, you know, those guys are the professionals. They've got the training. They've got the equipment. They've got the insurance and the paychecks. You know what? Let's let them do it. And in time, what happened is the life-saving society began to pull back. Now, they didn't disband because they really enjoyed each other's company. And they, they, this, was, this was heritage for them that gave them significance. But they just weren't in the life-saving business anymore. They didn't have people watching the shore. They quit sending out teams. But they'd get together on occasion for, for suppers and just to hang with each other. Now, Ortberg mentions that on the island today, there are, by the way, that that organization still exists. They get together on occasion to just enjoy each other over a meal. He says on the island, there are are also yacht clubs. Now, nothing wrong with the yacht club. Really, there's nothing wrong with the yacht club. But you have to understand that there is a difference between a yacht club and a life-saving society. The life-saving society's goal, their perspective, their vision is outward. Those folk out there who are perishing, our job is to take care of them and go find them no matter what it costs. The Yacht Club, their perspective is a little bit more inward, isn't it? It's my hobby and more comfort and convenience. The, the, the perspective is more inward. And complaining would begin to happen in the Yacht Club over temperature and those hoops that those bureaucrats are making us jump through and, and the parking problem and the, all of those kind of things. But issues that you wouldn't have. No complaining happening in the life-saving society. Now, here's the question, obviously. Is FAC more of a life-saving society or a yacht club? Are you, personally, more of a life-saving society? It's what your life is about. Or more of a yacht club? This is very 
important question for established churches. Because you know when the church started out, there was a zeal with the life-saving thing. They were looking for the lost people, and that's why they sacrificed everything to go get them. But in time, we enjoy each other's company, and we hang. But as far as the, the life-saving business, we're really not in too much of that anymore. Now, this is really important because this is our identity. If I was to ask you, who are you? What might you answer? Well, I'm a teacher, I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor, I'm a, a machinist, whatever. We've got the list. Good things. But that's not who you are. That's what you do. One day you will, you will retire from, from that. Unless you're Brett Farr, you will retire from that. Or Dave, one day you'll retire from that. But you don't cease to exist at that point. So who are you? Well, turn your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5. We're just going to look at, at, at three short verses today. But powerful verses. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 14. Jesus tells us who we are. He tells us our identity. He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. He lets us know that you are the light of the world. If we were to graph it, it might look like this. You are the light. All of the teaching, lawyering, policemaning, all of those things, that's just the world in which you are to shine. You are the light of the world. It's our identity. Matter of fact, if you would look at John 9, 5, you find Jesus saying, While I am in the world... I am the light of the world. But now that he's gone, who takes his place? We take his place. That's our identity. That's what we're about. Uh, Great text. Matthew chapter 4. Let's look at this. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. And I will take you to heaven one day. Oh, it doesn't say that. And I want you to go to church. I want you to go to a Bible study and prayer meeting. Now, listen, I'm all for heaven and Bible studies and prayer meetings in church. I make my living doing that. I'm all for that. It's a good thing. But, but that's not what Jesus said. He said, follow me and go to the lost. It's the very first command, very first job description. He's given a follower. If you are a follower, you are a fisher. That's Jesus plan. That's what it's about. There's no options there. It was also his very last command. Now, think about this. You're you're, you're getting ready to leave this earth and you call your children together and you're going to give them one last word. Well, my guess is it's not going to be about the weather. It's going to be pretty profound is my guess. Last thing, Jesus, when he pulls his disciples together, last thing he wants ringing in their ears. The very last thing he wants, he wants to just burn this into their conscience and, and, and burn this into their heart is this. Go into all the world and make disciples, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, when you first look at that. It's like, oh, there's three things we should do, right? We should make disciples, and we should baptize, and we should teach. Mm, no. There is one verb, one imperative here. Go make disciples. That's it. That's the command. Then there's two participles. He's going to define what that means. Baptizing and teaching. Now, in the book of Acts, 
Baptism was, was synonymous with coming to know Christ. The New Testament does not know of somebody. This is not a baptism message, by the way, but the New Testament does not know of somebody who accepts Christ over here and then is baptized multiple years later. It just doesn't know it. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, right? They're driving along and they're going through Isaiah and Philip is sharing with them. And the Ethiopian eunuch realizes that Jesus is the Messiah. And so what do they do? They put the brakes on the chariot and they get out and they get right in the river and they're baptized throughout the book of Acts. As soon as you, you trusted Christ, you were baptized. So when they would say, are you baptized? That's synonymous with saying, if you committed your life to Christ, Jesus says, go make disciples. First thing, first part of that is you've got to go find some. You've got to go get some. That's, that's, that's his, his last thing. Now, this was, was a burning passion in Jesus', Jesus heart. This was his divine obsession. This is what he was about. Doesn't the scripture say, while we were yet sinners, while we were lost, Christ died for us? Uh, Jesus is hanging out with a lost person, Zacchaeus. Luke 19, he says this. He tells you straight up, this is why I came. I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's why I'm here. That's why I came to earth. In John 10, he would say that I've come that you might have, or they might have life. I think that's the baptism part. And have it abundantly. That's the teaching part. As we grow in our understanding of the riches we have in Christ, we have it abundantly. And Jesus got this trait from his father. In John chapter 4, we find this was, this was the God's father's heart as well. He says, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the father seeks to be his worshipers. I think we get it wrong sometimes. We think there are people outside seeking to get in. Bottom line is, Jesus and the father are seeking those once in a while, people will ask me, are we going to be one of those seeker churches? I'm never exactly sure what they mean when they say that. How do you answer this one? Uh, if by that they mean, are we going to organize all the events that happen in here on Sunday morning after a target audience of the unchurched? No, my philosophy, my theology of scripture uh, doesn't believe that's true. I'm not judging anyone who does that. That's fine. I don't think that that's the purpose. However... A healthy biblical church, a church that reflects Jesus, is a church that, just like Jesus, just like the Father, they are seeking the lost. I mean, that is, is a passion. That is number one on the list. That's what they are all about. And so when someone says, are you a seeking church? It's like, well, it's according to, to how much you want to look like Jesus. You know, I, I, I'll, let you, I'll let you make that, that call. It's... it's also been the father's plan from the beginning. Remember Adam and Eve, their job, what was their job? Their job was to populate the earth with people who worship God. Well, that didn't last real long, right? So Numbers 14, 21, God says, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, the whole earth will be filled with my glory. When you're reading through the prophets, Isaiah specifically, chapters 55 to 65, you find a lot of pagan nations, Isaiah says. That at the end times, these pagan nations are going to come to worship God. Of course, Revelation, what happens at the end of the times? You find our world filled with people from every tribe and nation and people group who are there to worship him. This is his heart. This is what he's all about. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is what, what's going on with him. And so he, he uses a couple of illustrations in our text. To just drive home the point a little bit more with us. He says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. 
And now in our, our world of electricity, the world we live in, it is really hard to find a dark, dark time. It was, it was pretty uh, dark this morning when I came, came in. Uh, stars were out. It was, it was pretty. But there was a time when we were driving through Kentucky and we stopped off at the Mammoth Caves National Park. And have you ever been to the Mammoth Caves? And they put you in a shaft and they take you way down the center of the earth, I think. And you get out and you walk through these caves, about 15 of us, uh, electric lights strung to the top of the caves. And then the, the guide stopped for just a second. He said, okay, nobody panic, but I'm going to shut off the lights. And when he shut off those lights, I don't think I've ever felt darkness before. But I'm, it felt like you were immersed. It was, it was on you. It was thick. And we weren't on the edge of a precipice or anything, but when he finally turned it back on, you were like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> darkness was so thick. Well, here in the ancient world, darkness was just part of the landscape. And we were traveling at night, dark, and it was very dangerous. And so when you, you crested the hill or you made the turn and suddenly you saw up on a hill a little town or village and they had all their, their oil lights glowing, suddenly you could see which way you needed to go. Now, isn't that the purpose of light? Light helps people to see what they cannot see. Light allows you to see what reality is so that you can alter your life accordingly. That's what you're supposed to do with it. It's, it's normal that folk would say, well, my, my work's a dark place. I'll tell you, my school is a very dark place. Some of us, unfortunately, our family's a dark place. Well, God has put at least one light there. Guess who it is? Guess what the, 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 the job of you to do is? It tells us it's to, it's to shine. It gives us another illustration. It says, neither... Do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl? Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. He uses kind of a, a ludicrous sort of illustration here because who turns on the flashlight and then tries to hide the light? Who flicks the switch on the, on the wall? And then they're trying to you know, put poster board and stuff around to block the light. The whole purpose of a light, Jesus is saying, is to illumine. That's the purpose of a light. If you think about it, we can worship God much better in heaven than we can down here. We can have a better Bible study, I think. We've got a bunch of bad interpretation down here, no doubt. But in heaven, we're going to get the right interpretation. We can, we can study the Bible better in heaven. We can pray, I'm thinking, better in heaven than we can down here. There's one reason why he has left you and I down here. There's one. That's to glow in this dark world. It's to beat with the heart of Jesus, with the Father, to fulfill the mission that he has given the church. That's what we're to be accomplishing. And you might say, well, hang on. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, listen, all I wanted out of this noise was heaven. I had no clue that people would be asking me to be a fish or a man and I'm supposed to glow and shine. I'm not interested in that noise. I just want to go to heaven. How in the world do you shine and how do you go? By the way, this is not Matthew 4. This was not fine print here. Jesus was letting them know that follow me and I, this is what I expect. Follow me and this is what we're going to do. Jesus lets us know on the front end. So the question is, well, how do we glow? And we're thinking, you know what? If we're going to glow, we probably need to say stuff. And I got to talk about maybe heaven and hell. That's probably a good thing to throw in there and sin, of course. And uh, Jesus dying, that's always a helpful thing. And uh, maybe I'll pull out the Romans road or my four spiritual laws or, uh, you know, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll go through the bridge illustration or we'll, we'll, do, we'll say some stuff. And that's, a, that's we're going to get to that. Not today, though, because if you look at the text, he says, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may hear, that they may see 
your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. The gospel has to be seen before it can be heard. There are two different Greek words for good. One first Greek word is, is deals with good like like liver is good. Okay, you know, liver is probably it's good for you. They tell me liver is good for you. But if you taste the stuff, anyone with taste buds knows that it tastes horrific, but it's good for you. Right. That's not the word. The second word is that which is winsome, attractive, that's which tastes good. And what Jesus is saying is live your life in a winsome, attractive manner. So when people see it. You know, we think sometimes that the lost world has just got all, they, they, they are just got all these questions and we've got the answers and Jesus, we're just going to tell them the answers. But you know what? Unless the wheels are falling off, they don't have any questions. They're not looking for any answers. And so we might try to tell them the answers, but they don't need information. Listen, life is going fine right now. And I don't know what you're talking. I don't need that. Now, some of us, lifestyle may not be as winsome, as attractive to attract someone who doesn't know Christ. The lifestyle might be a bit vinegary-ish, if you know what I mean. You know what I mean. A bit of uh... now, Now, let me tell you, if in fact you think that your purpose for the church is to be a guardian for the theology of the church and to protect the church from evil influences, if that's what we think, and most of us are there one way or the other, um, this is really prone to be you. The, the, the bitterness and the judgmentalism and the anger and the, the meanness sometimes. And you, you need to know if, in fact, life is, is lived with negativism. That's what it's about. That's not winsome. And Gandhi once said, that which keeps me from Christ is Christians. If, that's, if it doesn't work, don't export it. If, in fact, it's not changing your life, don't tell anybody about it as if they need answers because they're not asking the questions. Jesus says that what will happen with those folk is you live your life in a winsome, attractive way where you're not the last one in five minutes late to class all the time and your work is halfway done and you show up and because you're, you're here, you've you got the seniority, you're just going to treat people like this and because it's your business, by golly, they better do. But you act in a winsome way in your world. And when you do... Jesus says, what's going to happen? Look, there's a purpose here. They'll see. And they'll glorify your Father in heaven. Y'all are not going to know Gerald Simon, at least in this world, this earth, earthly existence. But Gerald Simon was a good uh, friend of mine when I was a kid. I remember we were walking down the alley one time. Earl, Gerald, and myself. And we were, I was as pagan as you could be as a little kid. I was, I was, I was pagan. I believe it or not, yes, I was. And they were, we get into swear fights. And one of them would start swearing. Oh, yeah, one of us would start blankety, blankety, blankety. And the next person had to top them, make it worse. Oh, yeah, well, blankety, 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 blankety. And then the next person had to top them. And this just kept going. This, this depraved cycle just kept rolling and rolling. Well, we're walking down the, the alley one time, and, and Earl kicks in. Oh, yeah, blankety, 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 blankety. And then my turn, and I let loose with, with the line. Let me tell you, oh, yeah, blankety, blankety, blankety. I thought it was a good one. And then it's Gerald's turn. But Gerald was quiet. And he just kept walking with his head down. And so we were chiding him on. Oh, come on, what's the blinking cat got your blinking tongue? Blankety, blank. Come on, it's your turn. Come on, go, Gerald. And he said this. He said, you know, the other night at Awana, I gave my life to Jesus. I don't think he wants me talking like that. 
he didn't give me a lecture or a sermon on how the, the swearing was such a horrific thing. I didn't hear a sermon, but I saw one. And right then, I changed. I thought, man, that's right. That's for me. When I was growing up, my, my, I'd get up to do my papers for my paper out. I'd tell you all about that. My, my sister, though, would be up. on a She's got one sister three years older than me. She'd be up, you know, ungodly hour, and on a regular basis. So one time I asked her, I said, Suzanne, what are you, what are you doing? You got homework? What you, it's a regular basis for you. What's going on? She said, well, I just think that I need to start off my day with the Lord in his word. That's it. I didn't hear a message on the virtues of quiet time. But my life was changed from that point. I saw a message. Huge. Rodney Stark, professor at Washington University, uh, he, he wrote a book, The Rise of Christianity, for a Princeton University Press. And Stark says that at the time when the church first started, uh, Rome was a cesspool of inhumane treatment, of degradation. And this is what the church came into. And, and because disease, when it came into the, the cities before uh, antibiotics, folk made an exit quickly, leaving behind anybody who might be sick, lest they catch it and die as well. But the Christians saw this and began to take care of these people, sometimes at the cost of their own lives. But as they took care of these people, the folk obviously had questions. Why would you do this? And they led many of them to the Lord. Well, when the disease died and the people came back from the country, they saw that their relatives that they left behind healed. And they came to realize that it was Christians who did this, that many came to know Christ. Stark says this. He says that by A.D. 40, I don't, I don't know his faith, uh, he says there were 1,000 believers in the empire. Now, we think from the book of Acts, probably his numbers were a little bit off, but let's give him his numbers for right now. He says that is 17 one-thousandths of 1% one of the population. 160 years later, by AD 200, there were 218,000 Christians in the Roman Empire. That is 36 one-hundredths of 1% one of the population. By 350 AD... Stark estimates that there were 33.9 million Christians in the empire, representing 56.6% of the population. Sometimes we are told that Christianity was just a marginal little cult until Constantine in the 300s made it legal. See, he's the one that turned Rome into a, a Christian nation. No, he didn't. He just recognized that it was. And you need to know that before this time, if you were a Christian, you were looking at martyrdom. You were looking at nothing but an uphill battle, loss of job, and, and every, but, but the church grew miraculously because the people decided to glow in the cesspool of Rome that they were in. In an amazing way, the love of, the love of Christ. Now what I want to uh, give for, to you all now is I have a gift I want to give you. So I'm going to ask the, the ushers to, to come forward. There's, there's a glow stick that they want to give you. Now... Uh, let me tell you a couple things about the glow stick before it, don't activate it yet. OK, we will activate them together. And, and the way these things work, let me give you a little. Uh, by the way, don't take one for Aunt Susie and you got four kids at home who aren't here. Oh, they lose for not being here. But let me give you the, the science behind a glow stick. OK, because I'm such a scientific marvel uh, in this little plastic tubey thing here. You find a ooze. It's a chemical ooze of some sort. I don't know. Inside there, there's a little glass tube. If you look hard, you can see it. A little glass, thin glass tube that's got a different ooze inside there. Well, when you snap it, bend it, you bust the glass, and the two oozes mix, and it glows. 
I'm such a, don't put that on your science test. You'll probably get that wrong. But that's, that's kind of the general idea. So we want everybody to take one and we will activate them together. Please do not activate. And as, as you're taking one, don't fight over the colors. I wanted purple. Just go ahead and take whatever. It's, it's fine. Now here will be your homework assignment. Listen, listen, listen well. As we're going through this glow in the dark series. Now this thing, we got the budget glow sticks, by the way. Uh, and so it's going to go out in about six hours. But would you keep this with you for the duration of this series? Keep it in your pocket. Keep it in your purse. And every time you, you stick your hands in the pocket looking for your keys and you rub against this, just be reminded, this is my identity. To glow in the dark. That's what I'm supposed to be about. Now, y- y- y'all, might there be somebody in your world that you, you, maybe you've given up on spiritually. You think this person is just never going to come to know Christ. Let me ask you, do you think that their, two, their, sin, is so, is great, great, their sin is greater than God's grace? Does God not have power to deal with that? Can you imagine? Just, just, just imagine with me. Can you imagine if you and I determined, I'm not going to be a yacht club. I only have so many years left. I'm going to be a life-saving station. And if every one of us in here... Brought someone to Christ this year. Do you think, is, can God do that? And we doubled attendance, not out, of, not out of stealing growth from other churches, but out of conversion growth. Do you think that's something that God might want to do? Can God do it through us? Absolutely. That's what he's called us to do, be. If you have your, if you have your glow stick, we're still, we're still going out. I want you to be thinking in your mind. And we're going to write the, the, the names down hopefully next week. Somebody that you're thinking is in my world that doesn't know Christ. That maybe, I mean, I would, forget the maybe, I would just really like to see him in heaven one day. Now again, don't be writing down Madonna. And people who are in your world, okay, that you think, you know what, I would like to see them in heaven one day. Begin praying. God, would you do that? Would maybe you even use me for that? Oh, man, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Okay, again, don't activate them yet, because if you have, we're going to find out in just a second. (laughs) So you better start trying to hide it under a bushel. (laughs) All right. All right, if we can kill the lights. Now, keep your light. Don't, don't activate yet. Don't get too anxious. All right. Now, because this is an illustration right here, spiritually speaking, in a world you and I cannot see, unbelievers, where there is no light of the gospel, minus the exit signs and that, this is what they see. There's no hope. They don't see reality. They don't see what life is really about. But when a Christian comes in their way. Now, notice something about my glow stick. It didn't call you, it didn't scream out loud. See, glow, glow, glow sticks do not make noise. Light does not make noise. It just glows. It just glows. Now, uh, if your last name begins with A to D, would you pop yours and activate and just raise it up? Maybe in your world, maybe in your school, your home, your work, your office place, 
this is the amount of light that would be there. This would be attractive. If we had moths in here, we would all know it. But can you imagine if this was the picture? Okay, everybody pop yours and hold them up for a second. Can you imagine if this, there was this much light? Now, hang on, quit goofing around. Check this out. No, no, just, just focus, focus. If this much light was in your school or was in your neighborhood or you guys was in Erie, Pennsylvania, can you imagine the impact that it might have? Oh, man. By the fact that Jesus said, let your light shine, means that you and I can hide it. Or he wouldn't have told us that we're not. Somebody asked you, are you hiding it? Where's your light shining right now in your world? Okay, you can turn the lights back on. Again, you want to keep your glow stick on you for the next three weeks, just praying, God... Who? Lord, would you use me? Can you bring even this person to you? Because I know this. When you and I decide we're not going to be a yacht club, we're not. We're going to be a life-saving station. You know what? We will fulfill the purpose that he has given us in life. When you and I are focused on the mission of Jesus, then you know what? We're going to see people come to know him. When you and I are focused on the mission of Jesus, when our heart beats with our Savior's heart, you know what? It's going to break with that which breaks our Savior's heart. Guess what that is? The temperature? Oh, no. That which breaks with our Savior's heart is lost people. When our heart beats with his, we're going to do everything just like him. Everything you need to do, even if it means dying. You don't have to come back to see people come to know him. When we are focused on his mission 100 percent, you've got to know unity is not a concept. Unity is a reality. It's what we will experience here. When we've decided we're not going to be a yacht club, we're going to be a life-saving station, then the environment here will be an environment of love and grace and truth, and you can't wait to be here. When, when you and I have decided that we're going to have the purpose of God, you know what? The presence of God comes with that. And when we've decided that we're going to have the mission of Jesus, Jesus is going to dump his Holy Spirit in major ways because that's a mission he wants to see fulfilled. And I know we're not Pentecostal or Baptist, but this is a good place for an amen, you know? It is. Let me ask you, your own life, is it a life-saving station or is it a yacht club? FAC really is, if we're just a bunch of individuals in that regard, whether FAC is a life-saving station or a yacht club is, is significantly dependent on that decision that you make in your heart.